race is on and it looks like heartaches and the winner loses all. Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, back with you on this Friday, December 6th ahead of what promises to be a pretty exciting day of racing at Aqueduct tomorrow. We're not talking about it on this show. We cover that stuff in depth elsewhere on the In The Money Media Network. We are here today to interview an interesting guest. But before we get to her, I'm going to bring in the usual co-host on this program. You know him. You love him. He's Windstar Farms, Sean Tugel. Sean, what's going on? Doing great, Pete. Uh... Another cloudy, overcast day here in Lexington, and uh, excited to see Gulfstream get kicked off with their championship meet uh, over the past week, and uh, that sunshine's calling my name. I can't be down there quick enough. <laughs> what is your schedule for the winter? When do you head south to the sunshine? Uh, well, well, certainly this, this winter and spring is dictated by the oncoming Little Tugel, but uh, <laughs> generally... Uh, I'll, I'll go down to Ocala, uh, for a couple of weeks, end of, uh, January. Uh, that should happen again this year. And then hit up Pegasus, go down and check on, uh, first two year olds and see what kind of freshman sires are making some noise. We got four this year, uh, with first two year olds, uh, the fastest Breeders' Cup mile winner of all time. Tourist has his first two year olds, the, uh, excellent, uh, three time grade one winning three year old exaggerator who's by Curlin has his first three year olds. Uh, Outwork, uh, who was Uncle Mo's very first ever winner and went on to be a grade one winner of the Wood Memorial, has first two-year-olds that we're very excited about, and certainly uh, our homebred sensation, Spitzer. Uh Although he had an abbreviated career due to a training accident, um, we know what kind of talent he has, and, and his female family is second to none, being from the female family of Smart Strike who is a champion sire and uh, having seven individual racing champions in that deep stance on family gives us a lot of excitement for his first two-year-old. So uh, we got a lot on our plates coming up here and, and certainly, uh, you know, booking everyone's mares that, that we can get here with new stallions and, and, and young stallions and, uh, and certainly the honor roll stallions like Spitestown and More Than Ready and Distorted Humor. It looks like a busy time of year. We'll, we'll, we'll stop there and just offer congratulations on the exciting news about your, uh, your becoming a sire yourself. Very, very cool. Uh, are, are you stressed out about it? How are you, how are you handling this whole thing? Oh, you know, I'm holding up just fine for now. But uh, <laughs> as the belly continues to get a little bit bigger, the, uh, the stress level and, and, and nervousness, I think, continues to grow with it. So. Uh, we're pretty excited. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be a boy or girl, but uh, uh, we're pretty excited for, for early April. Very, very cool. That's that's right. A, a Keeneland, perhaps a Keeneland baby on the way. Uh, very exciting stuff indeed. It doesn't seem like folks in the breeding industry get all that much of a break from the schedule you were just describing around this time of year. I was going to ask as more of an outsider, and you know, we have plenty of listeners to this show who are curious about the breeding industry but don't know too much about it. What what's What are the topics of most concern right now? Uh, well, certainly a lot of people, you know, now, now that we've gotten through the breeding stock sales and, and um, you know, a lot of people, we're, we're starting to, to get, get people out to see our new stallions, both Yoshida, Audible, and Take Charge into your new uh, for 2020. So we've, we're getting, uh, breeders are coming to town, breeders are seeing the horses, having a lot of conversations and matings 
uh, on mares to get to stallions. Um, so it's real busy. Like you said, there's never really a downtime. Um, you're either paying attention to the offspring of your stallions or, or you're booking mares or you're getting out on the farms to see new babies. But, uh, it, once it, when, but that week from Christmas to New Year's, uh, I don't think anybody in the horse business talks to each other. <laughs> That's the off time right there. Yeah, don't call anybody and they won't call you. <laughs> You mentioned that topic of picking matings. That's a good one, I think, for a future show. I'll let you start working on that in the back of your brain. Maybe a couple of guests we could have on to just talk about that process. I think that's one that people in the industry would be interested to hear from some of the folks that have a legendary skill when it comes to that. And also, I think some of the fans would also really appreciate that. It's an interesting thing that I didn't realize was, uh, was I mean, of course, it's an important part of what's going on right now but it's not something that i as more of an outsider horse player really really thought about before yeah i mean it's there's a lot that goes into it uh just sitting down and, and getting a good mating to your mare you know if when you're trying to sit down and breed uh the best racehorse you can out of your mare you, you've you've got to see what works with the family you've got to see what works physically um there's just so many different variables that can go into it. And that's just trying to get the right mating together, let alone trying to keep the mare pregnant and get the foal on the ground. And so it's, uh, it's quite, uh, an experiment. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, uh, when, when it goes right and, and it works out well and, and you get that good sale horse, you get that really good race horse, uh, it makes, makes, makes those long hours even more worth it. Well, we'll be talking about this stuff throughout the winter and on into next year very excited uh, to have this show up and running and, and rocking and rolling obviously kind of a mix for newer listeners we do a mix of talking about two-year-old races talking to industry people who are in the news and then also covering sales and talking pedigree on this show and i would imagine another dominant topic on this show over the next few months is going to be the 2020 kentucky derby we saw the winter book favorite for the race, Tis the Law, come out and not run the race that many of us were looking for exactly last weekend. But as we discussed with Jonathan Kinchin on the other show, plenty of reasons to still be optimistic here. What did you make of the two-year-old races last weekend at Churchill? Um, well, to start with the Phillies race, and, and we can let uh, our guest Debbie Easter, co-owner of, of Finite, uh, explain it even more for us, but, uh, I thought the Phillies race was very good. Um, certainly finite was, was, was a Philly on uh, paper that many were expecting to win, but, uh, the painter Philly Motu bred by Kim and Rodney Nardelli, uh, ran a great race and it looked like for a minute she might go past finite, but, but finite dug in and, and, uh, that, I think that's going to be a very productive race. I think both those Phillies have, have more to give and, and, and can improve, and, 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 and maybe get better. Um, the Colts race was a little bit of a head scratcher. You know, I think a lot of people, Tis the Law was sitting at one to nine on the board for about 25 minutes and, uh, you know, looked the part in the paddock and to take nothing away from the winner that, you know, Steve Asmussen and the oars, their, their declaration of war, their silver prospector. He's, um, I mean, ever since they put him on dirt, he's, he's a different animal. And, uh, and being out of a tappet mare, just like the the winner of the Goldenrod Finite was also out of a tappet mare. So you're going to have the stamina there. And Declaration of War is making making uh, noise all over the world. 
he's a he's a horse that uh, certainly was a was a good racehorse and and a loss to the American breeding industry. It looks like as a as a great avenue for uh, for a Danzig line horse, um, but. You know, it's a, we're kind of we're expecting Tis the Law to, to come out and, and dominate the race. Um, certainly, as we can see, as Dennis's moment stumbled out of the gate, Tis the Law did not break perfectly and, and was a little compromised um, by his early positioning. I think Manny Franco, you know, had to make a choice and, and sat there in a pocket along the rail. But, uh, you know, the, the, Tis the Law just never quite looked comfortable. And, and when you do have... Um, those kind of early uh, situations where you don't get to relax and you don't get to just kind of get into a nice, nice rhythm that it comes back and haunts you at the eighth pole. And, and Tis the law showed something that few horses have and, and tried to bulldog his way through a hole when he finally got an opening off the rail um, and just didn't quite have that, that energy and reserve to, to go past silver prospector, which, and like I said, I do not want to take anything away from silver prospector. I think he's a horse that, that has a big future. Um, but you know, to have an 87 to one shot kind of almost come and nail both of them at the wire gives you a little bit of a head scratcher, um, as to, you know, the race could it, could it have been possibly the off track conditions that kind of leveled the playing field for horses possibly. Um, it was a disappointing effort and, uh, you know, I just think, um, tis the law as, as opposed to being, the king of the mountain, I, it seems like uh, he's just kind of gotten himself now back into the mix with another five or eight different two-year-olds that you could say, you know, who's the best right now? I think that's right. But when you consider the trip, I mean, J.K. really did a good job. I, I was pretty uh, negative about just what speed figure the race got. But J.K. pointed out that as little as he actually got to show his run, that he's fully expecting a, a return to form and not not willing to give up at all. But it certainly has implications in terms of end-of-season awards. But I want to pause on the declaration of war point you made, Sean, because I'll just, you know, I've been following the story of what happened and the success he's had around the world. But what is his future in terms of where he's going to be standing? Uh, that's a question I don't have. Uh, you know, I know that uh, there was a deal done by by Coolmore to, I believe, sell him to Japan. Um, I'm sure Japan's pretty happy to have him right now. So uh, who knows? I mean, I, we've seen horses leave America and come back. So I uh, don't know if there's that type of opportunity. But uh, he certainly, you know, he'd be he'd be a horse that when breeders are sitting down to to look at uh, some matings this year, I think he would have been very high on a lot of people's lists. And you know. We have a lot of a lot of Fabiano in this country. We have a lot of Seattle Slough in this country, and we don't necessarily have enough um, of some other very dominant lines like Danzig, which basically Warfront and Hardspun are are two of your your best options to get that. So, uh, you know, Danzig is a very powerful influence, whether it be on the top side or bottom side, and uh, you know when you get something of, of that quality and, and he ran one of his best races of his career was here in America in the, in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Um, you know, it, it, it's just a shame. It just, it's just a little bit of the environment of our, of our, um, our industry right now. It's, it's a little bit of what have you done for me recently? And, <laughs> yeah. and if you haven't fault. done anything at all, then sayonara, will put you in the garbage can and, and ship you out of here. So, uh, Hopefully that can that can change a little bit and and you know our game is a game of patience 
and time. And, and when you have that patience and you have that time, the horses will reward you. I would think Australia certainly uh, might have a say. I mean, Declaration of War pulling off the uh, Derby-Melbourne Cup double. Pretty impressive stuff. Got to be coveted down there, but I guess you could always do a Northern Hemisphere, uh, Japan, Southern Hemisphere, Australia, or who knows, like you said, maybe they'll try to get him back on our shores. Certainly did show a lot of toughness as a racehorse in that Breeders' Cup Classic and has certainly been uh, providing plenty lately and there might be some lessons to be learned uh, from from him as well as some of these other horses that places seem like sometimes they, they uh, give up on a little too quickly but as we discussed last week sometimes there are pressing business reasons for that to happen I didn't prep you for this but I was curious if you had a chance to look at the two-year-old stakes at Aqueduct this weekend we did talk about them at length on the other shows really on the flagship show this week J.K., Eric Bilek, and myself going over those races as part of the mandatory pick six payout on Saturday at Aqueduct. But did you have any thoughts on either of those? You know, just taking a quick glance, and, and uh, certainly the Bill Mott trainee Lake Avenue in the uh, Demoiselle looks like a, uh, you know, both on pedigree and recent performance, looks like the horse to beat there. Um, certainly in these races, I think pedigree comes into great play here. Um, certainly with two-year-olds, very few of these two-year-olds want to go a mile and eight or will ever go a mile and eight again. And, uh, I, you know, last year was a 14 to one opportunity that I capitalized on. And hopefully other people did too, with uh, positive spirit by pioneer of the Nile and, and a three quarter sibling to always dreaming. And, uh, on paper, she was screaming out for a mile and eighth and, and she dominated that race. And, and if you better, you were handsomely rewarded. Um, so, I mean, obviously being by, by tap it out of that very good mare 7th Street, uh, a mile and eight shouldn't be any issue here. Um, I think if you're looking for some other horses, two horses that, that have me, uh, you know, maybe three is, is, is critical value. I thought her race at uh, Belmont in the in New York Red Stakes race was very good. She's showing the ability. She's going to need to stretch out around two turns here. Um, the new trainee for Grand Motion, Archers privately after her maiden victory at Keeneland blamed Debbie. I thought her, her last victory was very good. She'll definitely want the mile and eighth. And I think the big question mark is the, uh, the, the Suge McGahee horse, Alandra. Um, you know, that's a, that's a filly that's been, been, wa- been watched for, uh, since, you know, early Saratoga and, and, um, is, is again, maybe a, a horse that will love the, uh, the, uh, the mile and eighth being a blame out of AP Indy mare. So, uh, you know, if, if the favorite's able to be upset, I do think, um, you know, I'd be looking at one of those three. I'm a big fan of Alondra. I didn't think, uh, she lost anything last time, the way that that race panned out, big mm-hmm. excuse being uh, held, uh, just too left too much to do, I guess you might say, and just been so carefully handled. Still, my Oaks filly, and one I think will definitely be uh, will definitely be heard from come this Saturday. How about the how about the the Colts race, uh, the Remsen? Did you have any thoughts in there? Man, I mean this this race to me looks wide open. Um, I do think you know Chase Tracker is coming out of out of Independence Hall's race, and and some could say maybe that was the best two-year-old performance that we've seen this year. Um, Alpha 66, 
is is returning a, after the last race, and and that was a TD and Rising Star for Todd Pletcher. So that horse could possibly bounce back. Um, for me, I, I think I'm going to maybe focus in on on the uh, Kieran McLaughlin Aj- Ajawid. Is that how you would uh, pronounce it? You know, certainly yep. the uh, the Curlin will will get you the uh, the distance. I thought the uh, the maiden victory was was very good for that horse, and certainly um, you know showed up here in the Breeders' Futurity, kind of a quick turnaround. Um, but but didn't lose any any respect. I don't think. I mean, w- was well beaten, but Maxfield was was dominant in that race that day. And uh, I think going back to to Aqueduct, uh, getting around two turns, stretching out to a mile and eighth, uh, that horse could be could be very dangerous. And a race that I I could make a case for for many different horses. To be honest with you. Yes, it would not surprise me if something chaotic happened there. Very eager to see how that turns out. Excited to see. The showdown between Spunderun and Maximum Security, or at least what shapes on paper to be a showdown between those two and the three-year-old championship implications that one has. Let me ask you, as somebody in the industry, should Maximum Security win this race? Do you think there's any way Code of Honor could still win three-year-old of the year? Or do you think Maximum Security will tie this one up with a win in the Cigar Mile? Um, I think maximum security winning the cigar mile would, would secure the three-year-old, uh, championship. Um, I think maximum security in many people's eyes is the top three-year-old, uh, nothing to take away from code of honor. He's, he's run at the highest level, uh, the entire year. But, uh, when you look at, at maximum security's overall, um, resume minus the one race at Monmouth that he did lose, um, He's undefeated, and he's been impressive, and he's run big, big speed figures for for his crop. And um, I think many people just believe that he is by far the probably the most talented three year old out there right now. You'd have to make a pretty creative case for Code of Honor having finished at the wire behind Maximum Security twice. I think if the campaigns were over now, you could make the case, but I do believe the Cigar Mile pushes over the top, unless you want to get super creative and somehow give Code of Honor credit for attempting to compete in the Breeders' Cup Classic. But as a friend pointed out to me, there are no participation trophies in horse racing. We'll see how it plays out on the track on Saturday, and we'll talk about the results on this show and elsewhere on the In The Money Media Network next week. But, uh, Sean, I think it's time that we get on to our guest. And now I'd like to welcome to the show the executive director of the Virginia Thoroughbred Association, Debbie Easter. Debbie, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you all for having me. Well, it's our pleasure, and we are going to talk about racing in Virginia and your involvement in that. But I want to start off by talking about Finite, who stamped herself as a major contender for the Kentucky Oaks with a big win at Churchill Downs last weekend. When did you first become involved with this one? So I happened to be uh, standing around the Timonium uh, sales grounds at the two-year-old sale back in May with not really any intention of buying a horse. And I just kept watching her come out of the stall. And uh, she was with Randy Miles and Bo Hunt, and they told me she liked her. They liked her, and I kept looking, and I was like, what the heck? I had a friend there, Bill Dixon, who's like, Deb, if you do something, I'll be in. And so uh, 
I just bought her, and that's where we went from there. And then the uh, it was very nice that she's owned by the Winchells because they made it very easy to partner up and uh, put a few people in because that's mostly my desire on these things is just getting people exposed to racing and having some fun, and every once in a while you get dang lucky. You've been around the business a long time and, and been associated with good horses. And is, is this the best horse that you've owned so far? Or I know that you have a good long relationship also with, with Bill Dixon and, and the Winchell family going back to your, your Gainesway days where I think you were around Tappet as a young horse. So certainly this, this she looks like she's going to be an exciting one for you come this spring. We did. Uh, you know, is it the best one that I've, uh, I, I've owned? Good horses. I haven't owned other horses. I've had them with clients for clients. We had a little, I had a partnership before that had a filly named Summer Soiree, and we, we sold her to Team Valor right between the Kentucky Oaks, right before the Kentucky Oaks. So uh, I don't think this one's, I don't think this one's going to be for sale. I think everybody's <laughs> going to enjoy the ride. So that's a, that's a really neat thing. And, and it, the Winchells just make it very easy to enjoy the ride. She's got a really cool pedigree, and I wanted to ask you about what you think she's going to want to do ultimately with uh, Munnings on the top. Obviously, we've seen Munnings be able to stretch beyond a mile, but I think of it as I think of Munnings as more in that area of a mile. But with Tappet on the bottom, how far do you think she wants to run? Well, you know, this is how much that's crazy bloodstock agents know you know i when i first saw her i looked at her and i was like man she's one of these fillies with a nice great big shoulder but she might not be as strong through the hind end as you want i'm looking at her on going on the grass maybe long and look out she's speeding on the dirt so who knows um that's the thing that uh you know i guess you guys know too when owners tell you i want this type of horse you know you just all i tell them is we just want a good one. We don't care what they do. But uh, Steve, Steve and his uh, staff have just, you know, they've seen her. One of the big advantages, I think, is that Steve trained the whole family. He's familiar. He knew that uh, when we when we came up against some heavy, hit, heavy hitters at Saratoga, that uh, he knew the family could run on the grass. And obviously with the Winchells, uh, affiliation with Kentucky Downs that just made it super to be able to go down there and, and do that. So things couldn't have worked out any better than they have. Yeah, certainly uh, the other thing that I, I thought was very impressive from the Phillies race last week was was that fight she had to the line. Motu came to her and, and, and uh, looked like she was going to maybe range her in, and, and Finite just found that extra little bit that separates those those fillies uh, from from being just a, just an allowance horse to to a graded stakes horse. What can you expand upon uh, what that was like watching that filly uh, that last quarter mile from from the quarter pull down to the wire? I think that's what you see in the good ones, aren't you? Is that uh, I thought, tell you the truth, I agree. I thought that that filly was going to come on by us. But then right right before she got maybe the 16th pole, the 8th pole, all of a sudden it just was like she dug in and she wasn't going to let that filly go by her. And, uh, you know, there was nothing about that race that tells me she can't go that extra 16th. So, you know, we'll see. I I was impressed because I hadn't seen her in the rags to riches. I didn't get to that race. To me, she looks like she's grown. She, as Steve said, she's kept her weight. Her hip looks bigger to me than it, than it did. So, you know, it just looks like she's moving forward. And, and it's not like we've taken it easy on her over the last few months. You know, she's just been boom, 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 and very consistent. So very exciting. I, I, you know, we're just tickled to death. 
Yeah. Have you, uh, ha- has the ownership group and Steve, have you guys discussed uh, a plan going forward for, for the springtime to hopefully get back there to Churchill Downs? Well, she's going to the fairgrounds, and so obviously you guys know that uh, there's a nice series of races there, and Steve's done pretty well coming out of there in the past. But, you know, i got to leave it to a Hall of Fame trainer. That, uh, he knows what he's doing, and I think I heard him on an interview after the race saying he'd like to have about two races in her before the Oaks. And, you know, I, as you know, it's all dependent on what happens in those next two races. We get all excited here, but... Uh, uh, she's got to continue to improve and go forward. Yeah, and that's certainly uh, one advantage she has over some of the other fillies with, with already running, what is it, five, six times as, as a two-year-old? Uh, and, uh, and twice at Churchill. We know she likes the surface, and, you know, it, the crazy thing is it doesn't seem to matter what kind of surface you throw at her. She can run on it. So, uh, you know, we just are very lucky to have a filly that looks very versatile. Sean mentioned before the time you spent at Gainesway. Was he correct in what he was guessing, that you did get to spend some time around Tappet when he was a young horse? Sure, but I spent most of my time on the road. But certainly when I, actually before Gainesway, even uh, when I worked for uh, Eldon Farm, and we were very familiar with Tappet because Peter Bradley brought it to our attention when he was running and had looked at potentially... Uh, 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 potentially purchasing them, and we ended up not doing that, and uh, bad on us for that. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I, I mean I've been around him. I've seen his babies. You know, he's just a fantastic sire, and and Gainesway has managed him perfectly. But you know, that's the nice thing that that we have is that uh, on that bottom side is that we know that potentially, even though Munnings was made his fame more as a a short distance horse. I, I think that that's probably where it gives us some of the some of the distance that she seems to be able to handle fine. And there've certainly been examples. I'm a Chatterbox and Ohm, both Munnings, who've shown that they can go uh, a mile and a quarter and and beyond. So the the potential is definitely yeah. there. It's a super exciting pedigree. I love. Like both you guys pointed out, the fact that you've got this. What we used to talk about is found the two-year-old foundation for the classic races. I feel like the trend now is to start horses later going forward with fewer starts. But when I look down at this past performance page, I, I see something that, yeah, two races, that's probably all you're going to need with the with the tremendous foundation you've got already in, in finite. So congratulations there. We're excited to continue to follow this story and we also want to talk to you about racing in Virginia and what your role is and and how you feel about uh, where things are with horse racing in Virginia as we get ready to turn the calendar to 2020. Well we're certainly better off than we were five years ago when Colonial Downs was shutting down and all the revenue sources were shutting down on us so uh no we've 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 done some some we've been very lucky we were when Colonial turned in their license and we lost all our revenue streams, we were able to get the legislature to, to direct the, we formed something called the Virginia Equine Alliance, which are all the, the racing horse uh, organizations in Virginia, us, the breeders, uh, the Virginia HBPA, the Virginia Harness Association, and the Virginia Gold Cup, which is a steeplechase, has two days of steeplechase racing, but they were our, they were our uh, paramutual meets while we had... Well, we had no Colonial Downs, and so we were able to, one of the biggest things we lost when uh, 
Colonial turned in their license was that they got 5% of the revenue of all ADW money that came in from the out-of-state ADW companies. So once they turned in their license, that, that went away and just back into the pockets of the ADW companies. And we were able to get the legislature to redirect that money to the alliance and then give us the ability until we got a significant infrastructure licensee, which is a our long way of saying somebody to buy Colonial Downs. We, were, we had the ability to open OTVs. So all of a sudden, I went from all of us went from being horse guys to to running this organization where we were trying to figure out how to open OTBs, and we got four of them open and generated enough revenue until we could, you know, until we were lucky enough that Revolutionary Racing came in here, and we really worked as a team, and, and we knew that it was going to take something like HHR to, to, make, to make the revenue look good enough that somebody would want to purchase Colonial again. And... Uh, and they did, and and now it's now it's in the hands of Colonial Downs, and uh, uh, headed by uh, Brent Stevens, which is Peninsula Peninsula West, and uh, they have done a great job. And they and we had our first meet last last summer, five hundred thousand dollars in purses a day. We've got the we've got one of the greatest turf courses in North America, if not the best. But one of the secrets we also have is a great dirt course, and and people that uh, people that bring their horses there say their horses leave uh, Colonial sounder than they came in. So uh, it's just it's just rosy. I mean, compared to where we were, and uh, all of us just couldn't be more happy. And we'll see how it goes. Certainly, I think uh, you know, having seen Colonial shot down and, and and now come back as a new Colonial Downs, I, I think that's uh, it could be a great case study for our, for our industry as a whole as to how horsemen can get together and and work together and 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 open new tracks and 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 bring racing back into the forefront. Obviously, uh, we we talk a lot, Debbie, over over the year. Uh, you know, with stallion seasons and, and things, and and uh, certainly uh, going up through Virginia and visiting breeders, it's it's a rich history there in Virginia, and really is is you know we we all think of Kentucky as as the heartbeat of, of the industry, but but really it started in in Virginia. I mean, the Hancocks trace back to Virginia, and, and uh, so I, I think it's fantastic. Uh, have you had a great response from from the breeders there? Do you see? Uh, do you see? I know you have the the program where where you can be Virginia accredited, but uh, how do you see the horse population? Is it, is it growing early on in in this stage? So I, I don't I can't tell you about the breeders um, because I've got to see what the what the nineteen foal crop looks like, and and the registrations aren't complete enough to tell you all that. We've been hanging right around one hundred and fifty foals a year here, being bred which, you know, we're down near the bottom of states, unfortunately, that uh, breed, breed thoroughbred horses, especially considering our rich history. But the nice thing is we're still ranked in the top five, I, I think, is quality. You know, when you look at average earnings per start, we're in the top five in the country in Virginia. So our, we still have this good core group of breeders that are doing a lot of quality it's really hard. I'm really scared about around here that, um, and, it, and it, to me it's a societal almost change, is that we used to always have people from New York and Washington want to come into Virginia, buy farms, and breed these horses. And I don't know if the younger folks want to do that, but the, the one thing that is putting us on the map and saving our farms and, and really bringing horses into Virginia is our Virginia Certified Program. And that 
that allows a horse, an out of state, an out uh, a horse that was bred in another state, to come to Virginia, board or train for six months before the end of its two-year-old year, and we pay the owner um, when they win a race anywhere in the Mid-Atlantic. We pay them twenty-five percent on the on top of the winning purse. Now we budgeted about for about four hundred horses to come in a year, and we're getting. It looks like we're getting about six hundred right now. So. The exciting thing is, is that for, say, Colonial Downs 2020, where we're going to add another week of racing, so we'll have six weeks of racing, that we'll have a, a, a horse pool of about 1,600 horses that, if we are smart and write races correctly and do all that, that are going to want to come to Colonial Downs. And that's, that's a huge deal within the Mid-Atlantic where there's such a competition for horses, so... I think all of that, if we if we think about it and we are smart about it, can be really positive for what's going on in Virginia. Certainly had to have helped uh, this year, too. Uh, I don't know if, if everyone realized, but having a, a Breeders' Cup winner come out of Colonial Downs, uh, four-wheel drive broke his maiden there in, in a stake race over the, over the summer. That that should, should help you uh, attract horses. Certainly, we all know that that's a, a phenomenal turf course there. I mean, that's just a beautiful thing that happened. You know, some of these things you can't, you know, you can't stage any better than they happen. But the nice thing is we've got people like Didham, Grand Motion, a, a lot of trainers. Um, we even got trainers from California near the end of the meet. And, the, and we've got quality, we've got quality people running our race. And Jill Byrne, uh, Allison DeLuca, people that are respected and know what first class should be. Between their connections and what they've done for people, I, I think that's helped us. But what's very positive is the, the first meet couldn't have gone any better than it did. I mean, all the trainers were like, the only thing you need to do different is have more of it. And so I think as that word gets out, that just, you know, that's going to bring us hopefully more people, more horses. You know, it's a nice run-up right into Kentucky Downs for the guys that, that are, are doing that kind of deal. I don't know what we do with, uh, you know, the persons at Ellis Park, obviously, are getting better and keeping guys at home. But, you know, Saratoga, you all know, Saratoga's an expensive place to go with for, with a horse. So if mm -hmm. we're not running for those kinds of purses. But when you can run for $500,000 a day and have, you know, eight turf races on a card, it's a, it's a very attractive thing to do. Before we let you get out of here, Debbie, I did have a couple more questions. I wanted you to talk about uh, your involvement in, uh, in stallion seasons and how that aspect of your, of your job fits into the overall picture of what you're doing. So unfortunately, uh, unlike other states that have quite large breeders' funds, uh, the Virginia Thoroughbred Association does not, uh, well, the breeders here, we didn't, and especially after Colonial Downs closed down. So our organization, the Breeders Fund, has had to be pretty creative on, on how to fund things. And uh, uh, so every year we have a, a, a no-guarantee season auction. Usually we, we coordinate it around Valentine's Day. And, uh, you know, we tried to, instead of asking, the old formula for that was to try and ask for donations from farms and, Gosh, they get, they're so generous and they, they get asked by every charity and every organization around if they can donate a stallion season. So we just made it a little easier and we just made it like, let's do business. If we can, if we can sell some seasons which help you, let us collect some commissions. And, uh, quite frankly, without that stallion auction, 
the VTA doesn't exist because it's a it's a large part of our operating revenue every year. And luckily, I've got great members and board members that come in and help for the two days. And it's a, it's really a fun thing. It's fun to talk to people around the country. But uh, boy, the the farms in Kentucky and everybody, Sean and Windstar being huge on that, have been uh, have just been great. And, and it makes it a win win for both for both uh, organizations. So I, I think that's been a big difference. And Sean, you you can comment on that as much as anybody. Yeah, certainly. Um, it's it's a great format, like you said. Is is there are you know we we do farms get asked you know constantly for seasons and and then you know once you next thing you look up and, and you've given away ten seasons on a stallion and and that becomes difficult but it's a great model and it's a, it's a great I know uh, a lot of breeders people like Ken Ramsey and, and Kentucky breeders really focus on on that auction and and you have a great uh, versatility and, and, and spectrum of seasons available there. Uh, certainly for Kentucky horses and, and other horses in other states. And it's it's something for, for breeders to, to definitely take notice of. And it, it seems like it, it continues to grow. But uh, we enjoy supporting it. Um, we, you know, without racing and breeding all over the country, it doesn't matter. It won't exist anywhere. So uh, I just think uh, it, it's great that we all can get together, work together. And like you said, we just do a bunch of business. It's, it's no different than... Uh you all are helping us uh, uh, make things happen in Virginia because you helped us keep going, and, and I, you know, I can't tell you how much we appreciate all that. Well, I think that you really have both touched on something that's really important, which is in this idea where the sport is under so many challenges, as much as it's possible to open up old markets, to open up new markets, to, to really... Uh, keep racing in the forefront in as many places as possible. It's not just about holding on to what we have. It's also about doing creative things and reopening places like Virginia. And Debbie, you've obviously been instrumental in that. And it's, uh, it's great to get a chance to talk to you about that today. So 50 years ago, uh, or just about 50 years ago, there was a horse born in Virginia who still uh, looms such a huge figure in this sport, not just among the people who are around when he was running, but around people who are familiar with his story. How large of a, a shadow does Secretariat cast on racing in Virginia, even as we approach 2020? It's huge. I mean, uh, in two ways. Look at look at the Triple Crown races and the, and the records he broke in the, <laughs> there in each of those races, and he, those have never been never even been touched, but the thing I'll tell you, the thing that amazes me is that they'll have these horse festivals around the state, and you, you'll see a, a booth from the Secretariat folks, and I'm amazed at how far out we are from Secretariat's, you know, being on the front of Time Magazine and Sports Illustrated, but people still recognize him. They, they, they just they gather around trying to get his you know his memorabilia all that it's really a huge thing and for us in the state of Virginia that it's the legacy and it's it's what we want it gives us something to strive for and, and continue to breed that type of quality horse and you know we don't breed enough of them so we got to try and breed that type of horse 
it's good to know it can be done, and it's good to see the path that you guys are on, and we'll be continuing to follow the, this story through the year as this upward trajectory continues. Debbie Easter, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you all for having me. Appreciate talking to you. Oh, that was a lot of fun. Thank you, Sean, for teeing up that interview with Debbie. I thought she's got a great enthusiasm for the business and very excited for her going forward with Finite and also all the fine work she's doing down in Virginia. Love having Debbie on. She's, she's been in our industry for a long time, and and uh, she's fantastic to work with. She has a positive attitude on the industry, and and I think, you know, I think, I think the Virginia – uh, what she's done with Virginia and the racing and certainly trying to get the, uh, the certification and, and growing all that program. I think it's going to be a great case study for our industry as a whole and, and just going to show that when the horsemen do it themselves, when you have people working together, when you have the passion there, I do think good things can happen. And uh, Virginia has been a, been a great case study this year of of how it can work out positively. And uh, certainly I'd love to be in her shoes with a, with a possible Oaks filly uh, in, in my stable. But uh, she's just, it was great to have her on. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't meet a nicer person, more positive person. And, and she's exactly what we need in this industry. You said something there that I just want to pause on because I think it's so of the moment in terms of what's needed right now. We've seen, I've seen a lot of great stuff written about the state of the industry. We've also seen a lot of hand-wringing and, and, and that kind of thing. But I think, really, what we need now, three things that Debbie's story really highlights. Creativity, some positivity, and being proud of who we are, and also this idea of horsemen taking a more active role in the running of things as the, as the real organization, as the real entity within horse racing that has a vested interest in the future of this business as opposed to you know tracks owned by corporations who are very often almost all the time more interested in the next quarter than what's happening down the line this is a great time for for horsemen to get more involved in terms of the actual running of this business wouldn't you say absolutely i mean look it's it's the horsemen that uh and myself included that live and die by this if, if horse racing doesn't exist I'm going to have to go find out something else that I like to wake up and enjoy and do every single day of my life. Um, you know, like, you know, I think a lot of these committees and groups and some people call them the alphabet groups, but, uh, you know, they don't, they don't have enough horsemen on them. They don't have enough people that are out there day in, day out, seeing, feeling, seeing the positive things, seeing what kind of impact horse racing can have, not only on, on, you know, in the fact of winning races and, and stuff, but, but really the impact it has on, on society. I mean, this is a big industry. This is an industry that supports a lot of people. Uh, just think about the, the kids of, of grooms or assistant trainers or stuff that, that have been able to go through college due to horses. I mean, you, you name it, horse racing truly is something like you, like the American dream where you can be, be a groom one day and make your way all the way up to a, a classic winning trainer. There's, there's sure. no restrictions on, on how far you can make it in this industry. If you just show up and you work hard, uh, certainly luck has to do with, with many different things in life. Um, but it is something that if you want it bad enough, you can get it. And I think, uh, if our industry wants it bad enough, we can change, we can write the ship and we can get it going the right direction and it can be 
a very positive industry for many, many more years to come. The thing I'll add to that is not only getting more horsemen to have a voice on these boards, I agree that's important, but but for the horsemen who are already there to not be afraid to, to use their voices and to take chances and to assert themselves more and try to get more of this perspective of what's in the interest of the long term of this business out there in the forefront. It's something I know you and I both believe can happen and we're happy to uh, consult slash promote various initiatives uh, in this little uh, bully pulpit of ours on on this podcast. All right, Sean, that's going to do it for this edition of the show. I'll thank you. I'll thank Debbie Easter for joining us. We'll thank everybody for tuning in and listening. It's been so much fun to do these shows. And every every week for me, it's like adult education. I'm getting to learn so much. And we appreciate all the feedback from listeners. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way. <laughs>